Take your Bibles with you and turn to Galatians chapter 4 for a short New Testament reading, followed by our continuation in the book of Genesis with the life of Abraham. Galatians chapter 4, verse 28 through 31. In these few verses in Galatians 4, we find Paul's own exposition of the relationship between Abraham and two sons, two sons of his own body, one Ishmael, one Isaac. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you for the grace that you have granted to us that has brought us to sit before you and open our Bibles and and set our eyes and ears upon the word of God. We are a people with abundance and that we have a Bible of our own, that we can look at it, that we can be gathered and hear it. Oh, Lord, you have shown us these kindnesses of your providence. But, Father, we know, as your word tells us, there is a great danger of simply being present and not being changed, simply hearing but not believing or hearing and not obeying, oh Lord, we pray that you would indeed convert us, grant us repentance, reform us, give each here today what is their need so that they are right with you. And Lord, we pray that your word would be mighty among us in the care of your son, Jesus Christ, the king whose voice we most desire to hear. Give us many graces now, Lord, to hear it, to recognize its authority, to yield to it, to believe it, to indeed see our lives transformed by it. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians 4, beginning at verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac... Are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now turn with me to Genesis 17. Our reading here begins at verse 18 through 23. Genesis 17, 18. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But... I will establish my covenant with Isaac. 
whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house and bought with his money. He took every male among the men of Abraham's house and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. This is God's word. Sometimes we just do not know what is really going on in the world. Because we do not know what is most important to God. And we do not know what is most important to God because we have not listened very well to the word of God when it is being preached or when it is being read or when it is being sung. And we have not listened very well because, frankly, we are often controlled by a conceit. A conceit that makes us think we are listening well. The conceit is that we think all the stuff we already believe about God and all the stuff we already think about God is exactly what is being preached before us again and being read before us again and being sung before us again. So we relax and do not listen carefully. Because of our conceit, we think nothing urgent, nothing important, nothing amazing is being said. But as today's little passage in Genesis 17 will prove, God's word is often saying the very thing that we do not presently believe. Or at least it is saying the very thing we find hard to believe. Or at least it is saying the very thing we may believe, but we do not think much about because, because, well, it is so different from what I already believe and from what I already think about God. But it is this very thing, the thing that is strange to us and remote to us and inaccessible to us, the thing that we have not had the want for or the capacity for to hear. It is this thing that turns out to be the most important thing. And that's what we have today. It is the most important thing to God. And it would become the most important thing to us if we will look at it and hear it, and do not look away from it. But if we are to look at it, hear it, and not look away, we will need God's help. We will need God's help to believe that everything in his word is necessary and absolutely true. We will need God's help to keep from turning our unfamiliarity toward what he is saying today into rejection. We will need God's help to love what he is saying and recognize, maybe even for the first time, how important and valuable and central it is to everything else we already know about God. So what is this thing? What is this thing God says in today's passage that is so important, yet so unfamiliar? Beloved, it is this. Children of God do not become children of God because of the will of man. It is not men who choose who will become children of God. It is not even greatly blessed men like Abraham who chooses who will become a child of God. It is not even the proper administration and application of a sacrament that determines who will become a child of God. Ishmael gets circumcised on the same day Abraham is circumcised. 
But Ishmael remains a child of the flesh and not a child of God. Abraham, of course, wanted Ishmael to live before God. Abraham wanted Ishmael included in the eternal salvation God is working out on the earth. But God said no to Abraham. And by this no, God shows his church that the foundation of his church's everlasting blessedness is sovereign grace, not something else, not the will of a parent. That is not the foundation of the church's everlasting blessedness, not the work of the sacrament. That is not the foundation of the church's everlasting blessedness. It is God who chooses, and God alone. It is God who chooses who will live before him. It is God who gives life. It is God who graciously works out all that needs to be worked out to make someone a child of God. Which means not all are children of God, but those who do become children of God become such because of sovereign grace. Here is how this is explained in John chapter 1 in the New Testament. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, 12 and 13. Here's how it is explained by Paul in Romans 11:5. At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Sovereign grace is the most important thing to God. What man wants is not. Even though we often do not want to think about sovereign grace, God will never let it be forgotten. He will never let sovereign grace be decentered. He will never let it go quiet. Sovereign grace is the thing God keeps putting before our eyes and setting upon our ears. It is the most important thing to God because it is the thing by which God keeps his absolute freedom as a divine being so that no man can corner him or put him in some kind of debt or obligation to man. But the good news is God's sovereign grace is also the means by which God fully and completely brings some of fallen mankind into eternal communion with him, which is our everlasting salvation. Now there is also this thing called common grace, And in a few minutes, we will see it in our text this morning. But first, we must look more closely to the vivid colors of God's sovereign saving grace. These colors are bursting forth in God's distinct covenant promises to Isaac. We must not look away from sovereign grace because if we do, we will not rightly honor God. We will not glorify God. We will end up giving the creature, man, 
the honor that belongs to God alone. So look closer with me at our text. Genesis 17. When we reach verse 18, Abraham has just heard from God that he and Sarah will together be having a baby in their old age. Abraham 100, Sarah 90. As husband and wife, Abraham and Sarah have made love together many times, but they have never conceived a child. But now God is promising to open Sarah's womb. A child is to be born, a son is to be given, and this son is coming into the world only by the purpose of God, by the power of God, by the will of God. The purpose, power, and will of Abraham and Sarah have been shown to be worthless in bringing this son into the world. And this is God's perfect design. For he would show his church down through the ages that men enter into salvation life only by the purpose and the power and the will of God. So this son will be a grand display of God's grace, for he will come to a womb that was dead. Now that was last week's sermon. Now Abraham, having heard all of this in verse 17, having believed it with great joy in verse 17, Abraham immediately remembers, (laughs) how could he forget that he already has a son, Ishmael, a 13-year-old son, This is the son he conceived with Hagar, the Egyptian maid of his wife. Abraham loves Ishmael. Abraham already has this son in his house. Abraham already sees this son daily. Abraham already speaks with this son and eats with this son and works in the field alongside this son. So in verse 18, Abraham cries out to God for this son, Ishmael, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. This is the noble prayer of a godly parent. Abram is like Job, praying to God for spiritual life to be given to his son. Abram is not asking God to favor Ishmael instead of the new baby. Abraham is asking God to favor Ishmael in the same way God is favoring the new baby. By faith, Abram sees that God's kingdom of salvation advances in the world in and through the new baby, Isaac. But in verse 18, Abram is asking God to also choose Ishmael for this salvation. This is what Abraham means by live before you. Abram wants Ishmael to have the same saving grace Isaac will have. With his heart full of love for Ishmael, Abram wants this older son to have faith and holiness of life. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But look how the Lord answers in verse 19. The Lord says, no, But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. 
I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. What a hard answer for a mortal. And the Lord, knowing that we are fragile, fragile creatures, frail children of dust, immediately after his no, reestablishes and restates the glorious gift of Isaac to help a discouraged Abraham. The Lord's answer in verse 19 is that it will be Isaac, not Ishmael. It will not be Isaac and Ishmael. It will not be Ishmael. It will be Isaac, not Ishmael. It will be Isaac in whom the kingdom of salvation will advance. Not Ishmael. Isaac will be the one whom the Spirit of God makes live before God. Not Ishmael. Isaac will be the one who not only experiences circumcision of his foreskin, but also experiences circumcision of his heart. Not Ishmael. To Isaac will be applied the circumcision of Christ on the cross, the atoning blood of the eternal covenant covering all his sins, not Ishmael. Beloved, this discussion in 18 and 19 is a discussion concerning the election of God's redeemed people. It is identical to the discussion that will be had with Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, where the Lord will say, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Ishmael will be left outside of the boundaries of God's sovereign grace. In Romans chapter 9, verse 7, the Apostle Paul is specifically commenting on Ishmael when he says this, not all children of Abraham because Excuse me, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It's Romans 9, 7, and 8. Ishmael, even though he is Abram's older son and the son whom Abram can see with his eyes, even so Ishmael belongs to the children of flesh, not to the children of promise. The children of flesh, as Paul phrases it, may have a very visible outward religious life. They may have circumcision. Ishmael did. They may have baptism. They may have church attendance. They may have church membership. They may have the Lord's Supper. But the children of the flesh only have a visible outward religious life. Inwardly, they do not live before God. They are still under the dominion of a fallen sinful nature. They are still dead in their trespasses and sins. They have not come to Christ by faith. They have not been born of the Spirit. Charles Spurgeon described the children of flesh this way. All their religion is a matter of their own power and strength. 
their mind is set on earthly things. Children of the flesh are often at the place of worship, but while there they think of their business, their house, their farm. Does such a person enjoy the worship of God? Not he. Not the children of flesh. There remains in the children of flesh a hostile spirit towards the things of God. This hostility appeared in Ishmael's life like a poisonous fruit, a black apple filled with worms. We learn in Genesis 21, verse 9, that after Isaac was weaned from his mother, about three years old perhaps, that's when Ishmael started to mock Isaac. Ishmael was 16 by then. He was strong, smart, athletic, clever, proud. He turned his abilities against the weaknesses of a three-year-old. But if Ishmael had faith in God, if Ishmael had faith in what God's word had promised to Isaac, for surely Ishmael knew because Abram would have told him that this boy is the son of promise. If Ishmael had believed that, if he had such faith, he would not have mocked Isaac. Instead, he would have given up all his honor and laid it at the feet of his little brother. But he could not. Cain could not. Esau could not. The Pharisees could not. The children of the flesh cannot. Instead, Ishmael treated Isaac the very way Satan treats Christ's church. And you heard it earlier in Galatians 4.29. I'll read it again. At that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac. And then Paul adds, so also it is now. The hostility that stays in the heart of the unconverted, of those who have a visible outward religious life, they still persecute the true believers. They see the godly man, the Christ-confessing man, and they mock him, even if it is silent in their own heart. So let us be clear, children of the flesh are hostile to God because the sin nature holds dominion over them. They are not hostile to God because God chose someone other than them for his saving grace, which means God was not being unfair to Ishmael because he chose Isaac instead. It means rather that Isaac received mercy while Ishmael received justice. There's no unfairness. And you might say, well, can God really show mercy to Isaac without justly dealing with his sins? You are wise to ask that question. Of course, God must show justice to Isaac's sins. And so Isaac will have a brother someday who is born of the Virgin Mary who will take all of Isaac's sins and justly 
bear the load of God's wrath and curse and judgment against the evil heart of Isaac so that Isaac's mercy never is lost. Ishmael was left in his sins, and in the end, he will receive the wages sins deserve. And we see that beginning in Genesis 21 when he's mocking Isaac. Paul quotes it in Galatians 4 in the reading. Ishmael is cursed and he is excommunicated from the church. The Lord tells Abraham, get rid of the slave woman and her son. They are put out of the church of God because they are now hostile, circumcised opponents. Now, before we go another step, we must observe that God did show Ishmael a kind of grace, though it was not the sovereign saving grace of spiritual life. Look at verse 20, where we see God showing Ishmael common grace. The Lord says to Abraham, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. Now, several people today, several nations today, several tribes today claim Ishmael as their father. Many Arab nations claim him. Many Muslims claim him. Well, here the Lord has just declared in verse 20 that a material, earthly blessing will indeed come to Ishmael. He too will populate the earth. He too will find honor among men, 12 princes. But this is not spiritual everlasting blessedness, like that which is coming to Isaac and all who share Isaac's faith in Christ. The blessings on Ishmael are only natural blessings for this present life. We call these common grace blessings because they do not belong to salvation. Therefore, they are common. And they are not deserved. Therefore, they are grace. God does not owe anything to Ishmael, but he gives, even so. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology, said, quote, Though he has forfeited all the blessings of God, Ishmael receives abundant tokens of the goodness of God from day to day. See, there is a kindness from God that comes to unbelievers because they dwell near, or even better yet, because they dwell within the covenant bonds of believers. Ishmael is in the covenant of grace. He has been circumcised. Why specifically are these common grace blessings coming to Ishmael? Because his father prayed for him. Ishmael benefits being bound to godly parents of faith, parents who live before God. Ishmael gains some temporal benefits from having this outward relation in the covenant. But Isaac, on the other hand, he will experience all the benefits of the covenant of grace. He experiences both common grace and saving grace, meaning he is bound to godly parents of faith who live before God and he will be bound to Christ by his own faith 
and so live before God himself, which will then make him a parent of faith who blesses his own offspring. Beloved, this is our main lesson, and I want to drive it home now with a few points of application. Number one, sovereign grace is the engine of true worship and adoration of God. Let me ask you, do you come to worship so that God might glory in your works? Do you come to worship so God might see that you are a participant and that he might glory in what you're giving him? Or do you come to worship to glory in God, to enjoy and rest in God's gracious work on your behalf? This cannot be stressed enough. Grace is the foundation of all Christian worship. This becomes vivid, especially in the great chapter in the New Testament that talks about this sovereign saving grace most vividly, most frequently, and that is Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, we keep bumping into these phrases to the praise of his glorious grace, verse 6, according to the riches of his grace, verse 7. And then in chapter 2, Paul can't stop. He, He has done this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.7. Beloved, we are to be overwhelmed and overflowing that we are recipients of a sovereign, saving grace. That we did not muscle our way into the everlasting salvation of Jesus because we reached for all the right religious levers, baptism, circumcision, Bible reading, attendance at church, those are all coming out of a heart that has been saturated with God reaching for us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were as barren spiritually as Sarah's womb, God reaching for us and calling us into saving life. Sovereign grace is the engine of true worship. This is one of the main reasons the Lord records his no about Ishmael in our Bibles so that we would never drift and start thinking that we can make ourselves children of God, that our choice can accomplish God's blessing. This is really the first loud moment in biblical history where the Lord presses this into his church and now it starts to flood out going on to Jacob and Esau. Second point of application. Let me urge you, do not make God smaller before men by trying to make God more meaningful to men. God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. God chose Jacob and not Esau. God chose this one, not that one. Do not try to hide these actions of God in choosing whom he would set his love upon for eternity 
Don't try to hide that God from your friends. Do not hide that God from your own soul. Because the God you will be left with after you hide a sovereign grace God will be no God at all. He will be an illusion, a fiction that will briefly satisfy, but will damn. God's salvation of the lost and condemned sinners is just as the Lord said it would be to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans 9, 15, and 16. Do not accept the ministry of any Christian minister that wants to leave half of God on the stage and push the other half behind the curtain. Let the whole God be known to his people. He has a grace sufficient for us to know him right. Number three, do not use the doctrine of election to harden your heart against God. Children of flesh do not come alive by their own will. That is what we have heard today. They come alive only by God's will. Children of flesh are dead in their trespasses and sins, like we were all so dead in our relation to Adam and Eve. And we only come alive by God's will. And some will say, hearing these things that I've preached today, some will say, well, if I'm elect, I'll be saved no matter what I do. And if I'm not elect, it won't make any difference what I do, because God won't accept me anyway. Do you hear what it's very tempting there to do under a hardened heart? The natural man always wants to turn the tables and blame God instead of himself. But God's ways are not our ways. His sovereign election in no way destroys our responsibility to own our sin and seek refuge in his son. The truth is, beloved, that the natural man hates the one thing that is needful, to be driven to his knees in utter self-despair and helplessness. Yet only such will ever be truly saved. Only such men and women will ever be truly saved. You see, if you are hearing this well, if you're hearing this message well under the care of God's spirit, you are to understand how utterly helpless you are to live before God. Instead of running away and using the doctrine of election to excuse yourself from calling on God, understand what he has happened today. What has happened today is he has brought you in to hear the word of his grace, the word of his sovereign grace. He has brought you to hear it so that you would come to know how utterly helpless you are, how you are left in utter self-despair if you would seek to have life before God by your own pulling of levers. You are left as a supplicant, as a petitioner, as a beggar. That's where he wants you. He can save you. 
Our Lord Jesus himself puts these words in the ears of all. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Whoever comes to Christ, he will never back away from, never turn and run and let you see his back. He will never cast you out. Beloved, the will of God was for you to hear this today. Look at all the common graces he has already bestowed upon you. And perhaps for you, it is because you have a believing and godly father who has been praying for you for years. And that's why your life has some wonderful order. That's why you're not in prison today. That's why you're not lying under a bus today, wrapping yourself in a tarp to keep warm. Because a father and a mother who believe and have made prayers for you, you, they they have brought down from God's generous hand common graces. Look at how good those are. How much more are the special graces of God's saving sovereign grace? So, beloved, I leave you with this. What in the world is going on? What is happening in the world? The DNA of the whole world is right before your eyes in today's text. The Lord God is ordering all things with men, those whom he calls and those whom he does not. He is ordering all things with men to make the praise of his grace be the song of forever and eternity. He is setting in the hearts of his people a power and a strength that is anchored in his grace that he cannot be defeated in his determination to save his elect sinners. And it is to liberate our souls that his love was never located in history for us until he gave his son. But he loved us before the foundations of the world, before he called that first day of creation, he had already determined to save us. And there's now nothing he will find out about us that will disillusion him and cause him to change his mind. The history of the world is a history of sovereign grace. Let us give thanks. Father, we pray that you would bless our hearing today. I pray, Father, for any among us who are not yet delivered from sin's dominion and penalty. I pray that they would see Jesus Christ calling out to them that all whom the Father has given will come to me and I will in no way cast them out who come. Oh Lord, we pray today that by the power of your spirit to the honor of your grace, you would even here in this church take one who has been a child of the flesh down to this very day and deliver them from death. 
And Lord, we praise you. We believers call and praise your name that you chose us before the foundations of the world to be heirs of the eternal kingdom of your salvation through Jesus Christ. And that you have not only accomplished this salvation in putting your son upon the earth in our nature and bringing him to the heavens in our nature, but you have now applied this salvation to us by your spirit. Oh Lord, we thank you for the peace that this sets in our heart that we are saved because of your determination and not our own. Let us rest on the day of rest. In Jesus' name, amen.